Today's Bible reading comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. I'll give you a minute to find that in your Bibles. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much. It's good to see you again. Here we are. Now, if you've got a phone, look up your Bible on it. That'll be good. Ephesians chapter 3. It'd be great if everyone had access to that somehow. Um, all right. It's a wonderful privilege uh, for us today to be able to spend time in this chapter looking at Paul's prayer, the prayer of the Apostle Paul. Um, this prayer has been immensely helpful for me. Uh, it's not just that I've learned better how to pray, but I've been caused to think about what drives Paul's prayer, and then by contrast, what it is that drives my prayer. And this has challenged me, as I've reflected, to have a, a much bigger view of God and a greater view of Christ in our lives and to look more dependently to God's Spirit. So... Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we come to you. It's a wonderful privilege to come to you in prayer and to spend time hearing from you through your spirit who inspired these, your words, through Paul. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that as we listen, you do your surgery on our souls and on our minds and on our hearts so that we would better think your thoughts and we would better depend upon you and we'd know what it means for you to be our God and for us to be your people. So please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I I want to begin by asking you to try and recall a time in your life when you prayed, when you, you really prayed, when you earnestly prayed because you had to, you must, and you couldn't not pray. Can you think of a moment like that where it was really earnest? And now I want you to think of, having thought of that moment, what it was that drove you to that earnest prayer. It may have been a desperate situation, perhaps a lost child, perhaps a Someone you love was critically ill, massive financial stress. Uh, Maybe it was because someone you loved you knew is without Christ and the, the, the weight of the eternal realities of heaven and hell kind of weighed upon you and 
You, you called to the Lord for help for him to intervene. Paul, the apostle in Ephesians 3, he is similarly earnest. Now, we know this because the normal posture for praying back then was to stand. But in verse 14, we read, he's on his knees. Like Jesus was in Gethsemane when he was praying, like Ezra the high priest was when he was confessing the nation's sins, like Stephen was as he was being martyred and praying. All times of earnest prayer, right? And yet the curious thing is that what's driving Paul to pray is not a negative, a desperate situation which he needs saving from, but something positive, something wonderful, a glorious gospel and a glorious God. You see it in verses 14 and 15 if you've got your device or your Bible open there. In verse 14, Paul says, for this reason, and then you have to go back to find out what reason. You have to go back to chapter 3, verse 1, where he says, for this reason, because in the bit between he had a aside, an important aside. We covered that last week. So he began to say, for this reason, in chapter 3, verse 1, then he had this aside. Now he comes back to it and he says, for this reason. But to find out what the reason is, you've got to go back to chapter 2, to the stuff beforehand. And then when you look there, you discover the reason is the glory of the gospel. Now, this week I've been, um, you know, I visit Steve Klein at the library and borrow books. This uh, week I've been reading this book before I go to bed, which is a story of the unlikely friendship between a Palestinian man and a Jewish man in Israel. They're friends because they're united in grief, because both of them have daughters who are killed, one by a suicide bomber and one by an Israeli rubber bullet which hit her in the back of the neck. And in their grief, they've formed a friendship which crosses a divide. But as I've been reading it and reading, it's a true story, uh, reading what it's like for Jews and Palestinians in Israel today, I've just become aware of all the barriers that are there, you know, um, the, you know, the wall that snakes right throughout Israel, separating them, the, the numerous checkpoints that Palestinians have to go through, the suspicion, the prejudice, the tit-for-tat retaliations and reprisals, the history of hatred, they're really divided. And, you know, what's remarkable in that book that is, there's a friendship between a Jewish man and a Palestinian man, that pales into significance with what's described in this book, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, through the Gospel, because there is the announcement that both Jews and Gentiles are both equally needing of salvation. They both equally are spiritually bankrupt. Neither of them have grounds to boast over one another and to say, I've got dibs before God on you. No, 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 both are equally needy. But here's the astounding thing. Wonderfully, through God's mercy, by God's grace to us in Jesus, salvation comes to both Jew and Gentile through exactly the same way, through faith in Christ who died for us. And because it's both a so equally needy and salvation is found exactly through the same means that the barrier, the law that was stood between them and gave the Jews 
sort of justification to look down their noses at the, the Palestinians or the Gentiles, that barrier is now put aside because both are equally needy, both find salvation through the same way, and then God knits them together wonderfully into this new humanity. Jews and Gentiles united in Christ. It's just staggering. This is bigger than just a friendship between two men. These are ancient enemies coming together and praying together to the same God through the same spirit because of the same Christ. It's a miracle, and in chapter 3, Paul says, for this reason, I'm driven to prayer. And then he says, as an aside, and we covered this last week, that's why I'm a prisoner, and the gospel is so glorious, I'm willing to suffer for it, it's no problem. I'm willing to go through with it, because the gospel's so glorious. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, And then we get to his other driver in prayer. It's not just the glorious gospel, it's the God is glorious. He says, I kneel before the Father. Listen how he's described. The Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now these words are not accidental. Why does Paul use that description of God at this point in his, you know, Letter to Ephesians, what's going on? What's the connection between that description of God and prayer? Well, clearly he has a big view of God. He's the one father, which means the one creator of all. He gives life. That's what the fatherhood of God is. He gives life to every family, Jewish and Gentile. So he is the powerful life giver to every person, every family in the world. And more than that, Paul says, he names every family, which tells us that he is personally interested in every family. They all matter to him. And thinking about this, I wonder whether there's an implied how much more argument here that the reason that Paul prays to God so earnestly is because if... God is so powerful as to give life to every person, every family, and he's so interested that he names every family, then how much more will he give power and strength to the new family he's created in Christ, with whom he is supremely interested, you see? So you see, it is who God is who drives Paul to pray. So Paul has two drivers to prayer, God's glorious gospel and God being a glorious God. Now, thinking about this, of course, I've been challenged to come back to the the Bible's view of God because in reflecting what are the drivers for Paul to pray, I think we need to come back to see a big view of God, which is in the Bible, because, why do I say that? Because if we think that God is angry, deep down with us, if we think that he is distant and he's uninterested, if we think that he's uncaring and doesn't show any interest in us, if we think of God as impersonal and cold, as God as unresponsive, or if we think that God is impotent, that is, he he has all the desire in the world to, to answer our prayers, but he can't really do it. 
If we have any of those views of God, we've got very good reason not to pray. We need to come back to what God is really like, which we see in the Bible and we know from the gospel. They're far from God being still angry with us. At the cross, his anger is turned aside from us. He's not angry with you if you're in Christ. He really isn't. And far from God being distant and uninterested and uncaring, the gospel says, no, 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 God is far from that. He's, he's close. He's interested. He immensely cares. He loves you to bits, Jew and Gentile. He is the life-giving father of everyone, and for those who believe, doubly so, because we don't just have this life. You know, our, we're not just an, he didn't just bring us into existence. He saved us for eternal life. He's our father twice over. And so it seems to me that if we are slow to pray, it may well be that our view of God is somehow distorted and we need to come back to seeing God as a glorious God revealed in the glorious gospel message. Because if you or I were to grasp God's gospel, his message to us as glorious and grasp God as glorious, then we would have every reason to pray. And these are Paul's drivers. Okay, so what does he pray? Well, these prayers come out of a very big view of God and his message. Uh, these are prayers which the Father delights to answer. They are gospel-shaped prayers. They are prayers which build the church. They are prayers which are always relevant for every Christian at every point of their lives. So if you don't know what to pray for someone, here is good prayers. They're not incident, they're not tangential prayers. Uh, they are right core prayers for people. Okay, so Paul prays two things which are really one. Two things. He prays firstly for strength, verse 16, and then he prays for power. In verse 18, you might not have thought that they were the things that Paul prays for, but that's it, strength and power. Firstly, strength. I pray that out of our Father's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Inner being, what's that? It's your inner self your core. It's a very good prayer. It's what we need because we need strengthening. We're not naturally strong. You might think you're naturally strong, but you're not. Naturally, of course, uh, because of de human depravity, we are prone to temptation. We are prone to idolatry. We are prone to distraction from God. We are prone to selfishness. And then, of course, we live in a world that's under God's curse, so we're prone to sickness. We're prone to anxiety, um, decay. But where we are naturally weak, God, in his spirit, is full of life-giving power. Paul says he has glorious riches. He's not limited. It's like a well that keeps, keeps bubbling over. His riches are glorious. And he is full of life-giving power. He gives life to all he has made. He raises Jesus from the dead. He raises us in him. He unites natural enemies together through the cross. This is a powerful God. And he gives us his spirit to strengthen us with power in our inner beings. And so Paul prays that God would do that. 
that God would strengthen you through his Holy Spirit. He would strengthen you with power in your inner being. Okay, why? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this sounds so Christian, doesn't it? It sounds so, you know, Kurong posterish. Sounds so, you know, embroiderish, you know, like, what does it mean? Let's think about this. It's a gospel shaped prayer. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's praying that Christ's lordship would take root deep in our inner selves. The word dwell means to move in and set up home and put down roots deep in our hearts. So he's praying that Christ would dwell in our hearts, our inner self through faith. When we think of heart, often we're thinking of emotions as opposed to thoughts. But Paul is not drawing that contrast. He's not advocating emotionalism, heart-shaped Christianity. Um, What's emotionalism? That's where you get whipped up in a song, but it doesn't really do anything to you afterwards. It doesn't transform your life. And neither is Paul drawing a distinction which says, uh, I'm advocating, if I'm not advocating emotionalism, I'm advocating a kind of cerebral, just creedal affirmation thing, you know, going on. We we say the creed. uh, but, but our hearts are far from him. Now, Paul loves creeds. He includes them in three of his letters. But he also loves the Lord. So what's Paul saying that Christ would dwell in his heart, in our hearts? In the Bible, heart describes our center. That is our motivation, our will. This is what drives us to be or act the way we are. That's where Paul wants Christ to dwell. It's not separate to our thoughts. Our thoughts are involved and it's not separate to our emotions. Our emotions are involved. It's it's our inner self. This is a prayer that Christ would increasingly dwell there at our core. Well, what would it look like if Christ dwelt in us? Uh, Two weeks ago, I asked the band leaders this and they said, well, if Christ dwelt in us, we'd have great assurance. Uh, Then they thought about if Christ dwelt in us, then he would increasingly take up will make his presence known in every room of our lives, right? Our behavior, our speech, our choices would increasingly reflect him, and we're going to get to that in Ephesians 4 and 5, okay? But I want to say, if, if it's Christ himself who dwells in us, then we will know him, and we will delight in him, and we will think about him, and if Christ dwells in us, he will be our Lord, and we will be glad, that he is. And this is, this is God's great plan. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, remember, is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Paul's prayer here is directly tied to that plan that God would strengthen us with the power of his spirit so that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Now, can you imagine the difference if all of us agreed to pray this prayer for one another this week. You know, each day this week, we think of a different person and we pray it consciously for that person. Can you imagine the difference if the Lord answered that prayer? 
Um, can you imagine the transformative work he would do? Can you imagine how mature we would become? Can you imagine how much more we would magnify God with all of our beings? Can you imagine how mission, our mission heart would beat in line with Christ's heart if Christ dwelt in our hearts through faith? If we prayed that God would strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ would dwell. Well, my suggestion is that we make a pact to pray this for one another this week. Each day, each of us praying it for someone different here at church. Let's do it. Let's do it. This is a prayer God delights to answer. So that's the first prayer. It's for strengthening. The second prayer is for power. Verse 17, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, there's a gardening metaphor, there's a building metaphor, okay? Rooted and established in love, that's most likely love for one another, actually. That you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp the limitless dimensions of Christ's love. How wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. Now, why do you need to pray this prayer? Because you already love Christ, don't you? And you know he loves you. Yes, you do if you're a Christian. Um, Well, Paul prays that you would know it deeper and better and ever increasingly deeper and better in all its dimensions, how wide it is. Embracing all families on earth, Jews and Gentiles, people we think God should like and people we think God shouldn't like. He wants us to know the width of Christ's love, that he could love even me, that he could love even you, and that he could love even the person at church who drives you the most bonkers. Paul prays that we would have power to know the width of Christ's love, the lovable and the unlovable. And then he prays that we would have power through his spirit to know the length of Christ's love, how long is his love, beginning before we were born, of course, true now and stretching into eternity, or as verse 21 puts it, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Sometimes um, we can be frightened by the future. Uh, Will we still be Christians in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, 30 or 40 or 50 years' time? Well, in Romans 8, Paul says, you know, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes through different things, but one of the things he goes through is the present or the future, will they separate us from the love of Christ? No. No. But we need power to believe it, that Christ will keep on loving us, not just now, but right throughout till the end. Power to know the length of Christ's love. And then he says, we also need power to know the height of Christ's love, the the love that raises us up to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We normally think, well, that's just sitting on a cloud, plucking a harp, no, no, no. Far above all rule and authority, Paul says in Ephesians 1, which means far above every spiritual force or being, good or evil, in the heavenly realms, far above them, 
what does that mean? That means you're in the position of ultimate safety. You're raised with Christ. He's way up there, and you're there with him, in him. So power to know that height, that you are safe and secure. Satan cannot have his day with you. He cannot take you away. And that place, of course, is also not only just safe, but rich. Rich. We are heirs with Christ of everything that God is giving him. So, therefore, you know, have power to believe that. Therefore, who, who cares if you miss out on a job or you miss out on a relationship or you miss out on perfect health or you miss out on a dream holiday? I mean, honestly... They're nothing compared to what you have and what you will have. So power to grasp that. And then finally, power to grasp the depth of Christ's love, that he loves us deeply in all of our sinfulness, in the murky depths of it all, our depravity that's deeper than we're aware of, in all its deceit, that despite all of that, he loves us. Paul prays that we would have power to grasp that. And we need that, don't we? Because when God answers that prayer, of course, you'd know that you know this love that surpasses knowledge. You'd know something that's greater than knowledge. (laughs) You know it deeply. You hold it true. He says, then at that point, we will be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And we go, whoa, that sounds so deep. I have no idea what he means. (laughs) What's he mean there? Okay. Um, It's almost identical to the end of Paul's prayer in chapter one, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Here's the deal. God the Father pours all of his fullness of who he is into Christ, his son. So that if you want to know what the Father's like, you look at Christ the Son All of God's fullness dwells within him. And then the Father gives Christ, in whom is all his fullness, he gives Christ to the church. And then when you believe the gospel, the good news about Jesus, Christ, who has all the fullness of God in him, takes up residence in our lives when we are given God's spirit and we make Christ Lord. And when Christ's fullness then comes out in our lives as we reflect his character and his thoughts, God's fullness comes out in our lives. Now imagine, can you imagine if that happened to you? Wow. Imagine if that happened to the person next to you. Okay, is that just a pipe dream? Well, humanly speaking, of course it is. And that's precisely why we need to ask God by his spirit to supply us with his strength and his power. That Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. And that we'd grasp how big is Christ's love for us. You see, although we might be hopeless to enact this ourselves, God isn't. God is gloriously able. And it's this that Paul finishes with massive motivation to pray. And I'm grateful for John Stott, who, from verse 20, outlines seven truths about God, 
all of which motivate us to pray. First of all, that God is able. He is not lazy. He is not inactive. On the contrary, he is active and he is working. He is able. Secondly, God is able to do what we ask. God is a God who hears our prayer and answers his prayer, our prayers. He is not incompetent. Um, he's, not, um, he's not someone who just wants to do it but can't. He is able to do what we ask. Thirdly, God is not only able to do what we ask but able to do what we think or imagine but don't ask. You see, God reads our thoughts and sometimes we imagine things we'd like to ask but we don't. But God is a God who often answers our unspoken imaginings. Praise God. Fourthly, God is able to do all that we ask or imagine. Fifthly, God is able to do more than all we ask or imagine because his expectations are, of course, higher than ours. Sixthly, God is able to do abundantly more than all we ask or imagine because his riches are glorious and they don't run out. Seven, God is able to do far more abundantly, more than all we ask or imagine. Okay, because he's a God of superabundance. Do you get the point? Can you see why grasping the glory of God is a motivator to pray? You believe this, you grasp it, what will we be praying? We'll be praying that God would strengthen and empower each of us by his spirit at our deep centers so that Christ, in whom all God's fullness dwells, would put down his roots in our lives and then come out. That's what we'll be praying. That's to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And finally, the goal of this, of course, is not our glory, but his, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He doesn't say just to, to him be the glory in Christ Jesus. To him be the glory in Christ Jesus and the church because we, brothers and sisters, are the ones in whom God is working for his fullness to come out. Let me finish with four quick lessons on prayer. Prayer out of God's glorious gospel and God being glorious. Okay, first of all, pray until you pray. Pray until you pray. We often begin with our needs, don't we? Uh, we come with our immediate urgent concerns. Uh, I don't like to say our shopping list because God is interested in us. Um, they're not trite, our immediate concerns. Um, but often, after mentioning those, we stop praying. But my encouragement is to you is to not stop, but to keep praying, because after you see we've covered our needs, then you begin to think about God, and you begin to think about what he's done for you in Christ, and then you get to the sort of prayers that Paul teaches us to pray here. Pray until you pray. Secondly, pray for the Spirit's power. It's striking that Paul's two prayers begin with praying for God to strengthen us and empower us with the strength and power that come from his spirit. We need God's spirit to strengthen us because in ourselves we are weak. 
It goes against our natural grain to let Christ be Lord, so we need to pray for the Spirit's power. Thirdly, pray for Christ's full indwelling. Now, of course, you can't know God without Christ. You can't be a Christian without knowing Christ, but we can know him better. Yes, every Christian has Christ as Lord, but it is a lifelong privilege to let him transform every part of us And it is a delight to let him do it. Fourthly, pray believing in God's glory. When we know the glories of God, we increasingly realize there is no one greater or more wonderful and no greater outcome that God be treasured more deeply, sought more earnestly, loved more truly, If you know God, then this is your highest joy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much that Paul wrote down his prayers for the Ephesians and we could step into his mind. A loving Father, we want to know you better. We want Christ to rule in our hearts and minds more deeply, more truly, more pervasively. And we need the strength of your spirit. So we pray for him to work in us and give us what we lack that you may come out in our lives and fill us in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.